This episode of the Managing Madrid Podcast is brought to you by the Managing Madrid Podcast live in Toronto happening in four days, uh, just a few hours after the World Cup final, which will now officially feature Aurelien Chumeni. So he will be, I'm sure his performance will be a talking point among many other things like, you know, whatever happens in that game. I'm sure it's going to be spicy. Just knowing how this World Cup has gone. So uh, just some housekeeping. Oh, by the way, if you want to come to that Toronto podcast, we're virtually sold out, but I talked to the owner uh, and we can probably squeeze a few more seats in. So really last chance, link is in the show notes if you want to come to our Toronto podcast. Do it ASAP. We're giving away prizes from sign sign prizes from Real Madrid players and it's going to be an absolute heck of a party. So do that ASAP. Um, housekeeping, if you're interested in thoughts on Messi versus Modric yesterday, we did an entire podcast over on patreon.com slash managing Madrid. It's all there if you want access to that. Coming up is a really fun conversation that was all over the place, but that's how we do it basically all the time whenever Jose and Sid are both on. Uh, we spoke about France's run, uh, Benzema's absence today in particular, Kamavinga not getting any minutes, what the final looks like, Chiuomeni's performance tonight, and then some other stuff that we needed to address, like Hendrik's deleted tweet, the behavior of some fans last night in reaction to Messi's performance, and naturally some Mbappe stuff, unfortunately, at the end of the podcast as well, because Sid is on and he's been pushing that agenda. So enjoy the podcast. And let's start with the help of Derek Ray and Ray Hudson. Let's go. Nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. Wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. Ended up almost looking like a 6-3-1. Some very good writing about that on the Managing Madrid website. Great podcast as well. Of course, Pere Valverde was a huge part of the equation. Hello and welcome to a Wednesday edition of the Managing Madrid podcast. I'm your host, Kian Sabani. I'm joined tonight by Siddharth Ramsundar and Jose Perez. The trio from the weekend is back, and this is now Sid's third consecutive podcast and Jose's probably 15th podcast of the World Cup. And it's yeah. it's awesome, you know, getting you guys on as much as we can is a huge win for the podcast. So let's keep it going. We're recording this about 30 minutes after France beat Morocco 2-0 in what was, in my opinion, the most fun Morocco game yet. And I attribute that to the fact that France scored early. So thank you for that scenario to have arisen because I thought from a neutral perspective, uh, this was the most fun Morocco game because we saw also a different variation of Morocco's tactics. So, first of all, welcome to the show, guys. Jose, we'll start with you. What did you make of Morocco's... I, I, really, this is a true many podcasts, supposed to be, but you know we're going to touch on a bunch of things here. What did you make of Morocco's lineup and kind of evolution in this game from conceding early to their tactical shift to their sub because of the injury to Sice and the back line. Start, start from the top. With Morocco, so in general, this game re- still reminded me a bit of that, uh, uh, of that France versus England, but of course, France facing a team that had less quality in the attack, so 
they didn't punch as hard as England could. Uh, but looking at Morocco's evolution throughout this game, of course, given the injuries that they were carrying and the rival that they were facing, uh, I think the coach made uh, what what uh, on the surface looked like an understandable choice of going for the 5-4-1. Uh, it didn't quite work because in the end, like, Morocco was using the two guys that are like two center backs that are maybe less talented than what they had in previous games. So mistakes started happening. And in the end, I do think that they benefited structurally. They benefited from the move from moving away from the five for one from the back three and moving back to like uh, to a back two and the kind of four one four one block that they've been playing through that they've been playing mostly throughout this tournament. Of course, uh, despite even though I think they were better, better structurally after the change, losing uh, losing a def- like look, losing a defender of size's quality did end up affecting uh, did end up affecting the back line and just the the reliability of that back line. So the way I see it is that the the Roman size substitution like made them worse individually, but I think it made them better collectively. Mm. Uh, and I think that it was especially good for them in the attack because they could recover kind of the 4-3-3 attack that they normally have. Uh, and they could attack in a more natural in what's a more natural way for this team. So that's kind of that's kind of how I see it from Morocco's side. Sid? Yeah, um, I I agree with Jose. Um, I always agree with Jose tactically. <laughs> I rarely disagree with Jose tactically. But um, basically, I agree. However, I can't say I found it that interesting for the neutral. And that's because um, even before the game, if France went up, I didn't think Morocco had what it took to win. And I was very impressed by them tactically when they shifted to the fourth at the back because there was a small period where they applied pressure by being perfect in possession. The wide rotations were perfect. Every player was extremely careful and really careful to release the ball. But even with that perfection, they didn't really create anything that wasn't a half chance at best. So yes, it was interesting, but I've seen Varane, I've, I've, seen, these, I've seen these guys do it against England. I didn't really have confidence that Morocco could give them the same problems. There wasn't a guy like Saka driving in and inviting fouls in the box. It was a little less threatening. So I didn't find the game as interesting from a neutral standpoint from one nil on, but they did get close. It's weird. Football is a weird sport that way. It's like they only created half chances, but if one of them bounces in a lucky way, it's an interesting game. But um, I don't feel they created anything clear cut, which is why, and I didn't expect them to, and it didn't quite happen, even though they outperformed expectations. So that part of it, the only creating half chances and not creating enough clear cut chances, that was ultimately their downfall, right? What, where I thought it was interesting was that I saw a, a side to Morocco that was dormant throughout the World Cup in these big games because this is the first time they had conceded. It, you know, they're going down. Con- this is the first time they had conceded. I think the only one was the Canada own goal, right? It was the Canada, the Canada right. own goal, yeah. So and that's the only is- time they were chasing the game. And I was actually concerned about that going into this game because I thought they don't have the punch to chase these kinds of games. And I think ultimately against an opponent of this quality, they did not have the punch to do it. 
but I think collectively they came as close as they as a team of this talent level could. Yeah, and and so here's where they impressed me. And and because what they did after conceding in the fifth minute was, to my surprise, they started to break out the shell early. And I and I thought like, look, eighty five minutes plus injury time it's a lot of time to make up ground on the odd counter, the odd set piece. There is no real need to do this, but they did it. And that almost really cost them early because an inexplicable Giroud open net miss in the box, um, which comes on the back of that amazing Chuomeni ball carry and through ball to Mbappe. So it almost, they and there was a stretch in that, especially after the sub was made and they shifted to the back four. And Amrabat was basically playing as a fifth center or third center back where they were conceding chances. They were, they were giving the ball away. They looked rattled and there was a good chance they would have could have gone down to nothing at halftime. But I think where they did impress me is that their ball progression was really good in this game. If you zoom out and look at it from like one to 90, there were phases in this game where they look comfortable with the ball at their feet and they look comfortable getting through the lines where they did not look comfortable. And that's probably down to, and they see having a, not a great game, not getting involved as much and also not having a, a reliable goal scorer or whatever, or maybe just panic feet at the end, you know, just putting your ball through it, not shooting in some situations. It was just that last final thing that they just didn't have the experience, the composure and the talent to to actually punish France. But up until that point, like the field tilt was heavy in their favor. I think they had almost 70% possession or definitely above 60. And so it was just interesting to me to see that side of Morocco's game. And it's always interesting to me how there are teams that sometimes in our mind we think are not capable of playing a certain way because they've basically put a low block into their identity. It's an ingrained, but then they're forced to attack. And then it's like, oh, they, they actually can progress the ball pretty pretty impressively. Um, and so so that that part of it impressed me. Ultimately, this is kind of like in some ways, in, a, in another level, the Croatia syndrome, where it's like you can only go so far with this kind of talent. And uh, I, I think they had a really talented team, obviously. And and a lot of new names that I didn't really have on my radar appear on this Morocco team. But ultimately, they just didn't have it. Um, and there's another side of this coin that is fascinating to me. It's it's the France discussion and, and their evolution in this tournament and where I think maybe they might suffer against Argentina. But is there anything else from the Morocco side of things you guys wanted to to jump in on? Yeah, I mean, from uh, from my side, yeah, emphasize a bit what you said. Like, the thing about Morocco is that while they've been pretty defensive throughout in several phases of the knockout stages, I've never seen Morocco as, like, an inherent, like, it's not a team with the kind with players that like that you think of it, you look at them and you think this this team can only play sufferable, for example. It's not uh it's never been like that. Like Morocco has always had uh, in general, I would say that North at least the stereotype is actually that like North African nations have pretty good players from a technical standpoint. And I and I think like a very stereotypical North African team would be, for example, Tunisia, that like they always had pretty good players from a technical standpoint, but defensively things were like they were a bit more open, almost naive, one would say. With Morocco, and it's been the case already since the past World Cup, where they only they didn't qualify simply because they were like uh, just like now in a pretty tough group. Like they were in the group with Spain and Portugal. I thought Morocco 
four years ago would have qualified to the knockouts if it had if they hadn't been in that kind of group. Uh, they've they've had this identity for a bit, which is like pretty good technical players. They can put on a good possession game against teams of like well. Usually it had been against team of similar or lower talent level. They did it right now against France, which is even more impressive. But they've always had that in them. Uh, but they've also a, a, they're also a team that is very solid. That that has managed to do some pretty solid defensive blocks over the last few years. Part of this is actually legacy of like Hervé Renard, the same the same coach as Saudi Arabia now, because he had like. He helped the, the team develop that kind of the that kind of defensive tr- structure, and his legacy has continued on with the with the current coach. So it's just a very complete team. One, I would say, I think it's clear that it's kind of the best optimized team for their talent in this tournament because it's a team that just can do a lot of things really well. You wouldn't expect a team that knows how to suffer like this. You wouldn't expect them to be able to play possession like they did, which is what makes them so enjoyable because they're just very versatile. And yeah, I mean, the only thing they were really lacking is that extra bit of punch and dominance in the opposition box to turn that, to turn that play in the final third into shots which is really what it boils down today. In the end, they just kept crashing against the, against the defensive talent of, say, Trameni, Varane, Konate, who just kept... Clear, and they just kept clearing whatever came into whatever came into the box. So uh, it's a great World Cup for Morocco. It's just a very complete team. It's a team that when they have to play underdog, they can play underdog. When they have to take more initiative, they're also able to take more initiative. And there are so few sides, not just in international football, but in football in general, that you can say that of, that can do all of these things well. And I think to a degree, that's where knockout football is moving. You need to be able to respond to any situation at any moment, any game state. You can't just like rely on the fact that you're better than your opponent, that you can outpass them. No, you there are going to be situations where you have to totally change your style because of the game state. And I, I'd i say the main thing, I agree. I think Croatia, I thought were close to optimal, but this team is maybe an extra percent or two even higher because um, given the IQ, the backgrounds, the experience these guys have, they don't have enough experience. Ziyech does, Hakimi does, maybe Masraoui does, but the whole team did not have the experience to play that way, which tells me their coach is really good at psychologically drilling them into playing with common sense is what I felt like you got to play with common sense, like the wide overloads they were pulling off. I feel any team can pull them off if they're synchronized, but you have to understand like the geometry of the pitch. And it's like, they immediately shifted into playing the overloads. Of course, Ziyech and Hakimi are very intuitive at playing that type of game. I felt like to be fair, they have a lot of experience with Ziyech cutting in and Hakimi overlapping. Um, And yeah, uh, that's all I have on Morocco. I think we can agree that Croatia and Morocco were some of the most strangely optimized teams at knockout tournaments I've seen in my lifetime, arguably. Um, Croatia, obviously, for many tournaments, Morocco, this tournament. And then my main thing, let's talk about France. A lot of people are talking about Griezmann. It's kind of wild to me that um, between the World Cups, Atleti essentially prolonged Griezmann's prime, got a league title and 80 million. And got Griezmann to show up at a new World Cup fresh. And now his stock is up going into his mid-30s. It's kind of wild. And I think just like Messi, we got to talk about how 
a lot of these guys end up at tournaments burned out from a long season. This guy has not played much. This is who Griezmann is in his prime. It's just that when you stop, when you let a burned out player chill for a couple of years, this is what you get. You get him playing like he's in his prime. Jose, France thinks. I mean, I'm curious to get your thoughts also um, of your your assessment of them in this game and also if there's any part of you that's worried for the final, just given their injuries and stuff. Yes. So, so first of all, like to, to talk a bit about, to expand a bit more on what Sid was saying, like, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about it because I think still like players like Griezmann go in, went into this, like with a, one, like, a bit more rested, maybe. Maybe they'd been playing, and that's true. I mean, we're we're we're, we're talking about the Griezmann of who's been spending like half this season doing like the thirty minute sub appearances. That could be good from a physical perspective going into a World Cup. And then he also has like the chip on his shoulder of like feeling that he still has something to say, something to prove. So he went into this in an almost like it was an almost ideal state here because he goes. He goes into this relatively like well rested because he hadn't played that many minutes, but he also was going into this like in pretty good form. Like st- despite the relative lack of minutes played at Atletico, he was still Atletico's best performer. So he came in in good form, wanting to prove something, and relatively well rested, which is great. Uh, then going into the rest of France as a team, this again to me this is just very similar to the England game in that. France, uh, in some ways, one can even say that when France scores this early, it's not even that beneficial for them because they take the step back. They take the step back. They become more passive. The opponent gets to do more things. And yeah, just France just switches down, switches down a gear and just becomes very passive with the confidence, with that almost like Real Madrid confidence that they have an extra gear in them and if push comes to shove they have a way to to score again or to or, or to rep- or to react to whatever their their opponent whatever changes in the score line like you always get the feeling that sure uh they were under pressure by morocco but if morocco had scored france probably had that extra gear in them it happened against england it happened here against morocco and that's what France is playing like. That's what Fra- that's what France and Deschamps ball looks like at the moment. I mean, the only uh, the only concern is that this midfield line, and and I think I said it also like in the in the previous podcast. This midfield line does not have it's it's not the same like having say uh, this time around they have Mbappe on the left wing instead of say a Matuidi, and I. And Trameni is still not at that Kante level of like defend Kante or Casemiro level of like defensive perfection where he can defend spaces, where he can defend spaces that at that level. Yet he'll get there. But it's it it means that this defensive block is still, in my opinion, not at the level where it was four years ago. So that's what I find interesting. The block is different, but I think what gives them an advantage, and Grace Robertson pointed this out, and I, I kind of had seen it, but Theo and Mbappe on the left kind of gives them an X factor where, um, you know, it's it's just different to what last World Cup, they had Pavard and Hernandez, so Pogba playing it long. 
I think Theo really replaces the verticality Pogba gave along with Mbappe moving to the left. I feel he's more of a threat on his own on the left. If Pogba was there, maybe you want him pinging those balls on the right. But essentially, I love the um, offensive dynamic Theo adds. And um, I think, yeah, I just think it's crazy that these guys have like two squads that they can roll out, like half their team can be injured. And they just like, they're still the all dominant team, which is just incredible. Um, I think Mbappe plays his ideal role for France um, that he doesn't always get for PSG where he's like, you know, like playing off the center forward. I think people underrate the extent to which he kind of bends the defense. Even when Morocco were playing well, they didn't give up transition after transition because I noticed numerically they still left some guys deep when they were attacking because um, it's, like there were a lot of times they had no choice. Like you're playing at Bampe. I don't think there's a scarier player in transition. So I think the amount of gravity he generates has increased since the last World Cup. That's actually something that I think is underrated. He's not... Maybe he runs in behind a lot like the last World Cup, but the way he plays in the half spaces, the way he acts as an outlet, I think it's gotten better. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's the main evolution of Mbappé in the last four years, that he's become, like, before activating Mbappé required someone like Pogba playing the pass in behind. Right now, he can do that, but it's not necessary because now he has uh, the abilities, uh, he's the... He's uh, polished the abilities on ball, the ball carrying, the combination play to just be uh, to be like just a, a one man threat in these counterattack situations. He doesn't need any more someone else to activate him. He just takes the ball and does and does his thing. I like just going back to the Griezmann point from earlier. I wanted to touch on it, but I had to kind of hand it off because my kids barged into the room, but they're gone now. Um and you spoke about the depth that France have, that you can essentially send up two teams and basically not have much of a drop-off. And now, like, the interesting thing is that because some of these injuries, it's never a blessing, but, like, some of the fruits of the injuries, if you want to word it that way, is that if Pogba and Kante were around this World Cup, we would have never seen Griezmann play in this role. And what Griezmann is doing now from that central midfield position kind of reminds me of Di Maria 2014 when Carlo puts him from the wing to the central midfield position alongside Mordic and Xabi Alonso. And just he can he understands his defensive assignments. He works really hard behind the ball. And he's just a good playmaker from that position too. And that's one of the benefits of putting Griezmann there. But I do think as deep as France are, I, I'm just wondering, like, with all these layers of paints kind of being peeled off them as this, the you know, the build up to the World Cup went on, the injuries in the fall, and now during the World Cup, you know, Rabio's not there now. Rabio wouldn't think he was a huge loss if he told me before the World Cup, but given the injuries to Kante and Pogba and Rabio playing well on top of that, um, that it kind of hurts them. And this is the first time I really felt that. Benzema over Giroud, just you could you could see how beneficial it would have been because they weren't France were not playing in this way of needing a target in the box and pumping crosses and and they're they're defending they have like thirty something percent possession they're trying to play in transition and Giroud is just not effective in those situations and a couple of times he did drop up drop back to do some like a play one of them he fumbled the ball and lost it. This is definitely a game where you're like, oh yeah, this this is a this is a game for Benzema. 
And I I guess I just wonder. We saw we saw kind of what France can go through against Morocco defensively. We saw some of the problems against England. What does this look like versus Argentina, do you think? You know, and, and that's what I'm curious about. I, I'm I'm really I feel like that game is gonna be kind of cagey. I don't know, but I'm definitely just curious to know at what point do these do they buckle under these injuries? Is Mbappe so good that it just doesn't like some of the things Mbappe was doing in this game just absolutely ridiculous on the left wing. The some of the sprint, the one where like right before Amrabat comes out and just um tries to assassinate him. The one he had like these this amazing just ability, just put the ball forward and sprint and getting to these balls that I just thought feel like they were out of reach. The agility, the bounce, the work he did, the turn on France's second goal, that that stuff is just so good. But I'm I'm curious to know. Actually, before I get to that, I want to ask you guys this. It's kind of hard to know what Deschamps will do from game to game in some way. Last game he made one sub, it was Coman. In this game, he had both um, Turam and Kolomwani come in over Coman. I'm curious to know what you thought his thought process on that was. Obviously, um, with literally, I think the fastest or one of the fastest goals by a sub in World Cup history, Kolomwani scores with his first touch in the same minute he comes on. That works out. But what do you think the thought process was behind that? Yeah, so from my uh, so the way I kind of see that one, I'm actually uh, so when it comes to France's bench, so uh, so the in terms of center backs, as expected, they're doing pretty well. I mean, Upamecano was not playing, and then Konate gets to play, which he could perfectly. They have Saliba start. too, <laughs> and they have and they're, they haven't even used Saliba. So the um, like center backs, they're well covered. Full backs, it is a bit thin. Oh, well, they have Kamavinga, but. Uh, uh, fullbacks is looking a bit thin. Midfield, uh, hey, Fofana, not super fan. Second half, his second half today, I like. I still think it's a bit of a waste to use Fofana as the Rabio replacement and not Camavinga, but that's a story for another day. But but given those choices from Deschamps, given Deschamps' unwillingness to use Camavinga, I still feel that midfield is a bit thin. To, uh, but Forwards, I'm actually surprised at how things have turned out because uh, I think both uh, Marcus Tudam and Kolumwani have had really good cameos throughout the World Cup, like punchy cameos throughout the World Cup because Coman is a player that I like a lot, very Macy dribbler and everything, but he's always la- like he's always been a bit lacking in the punch at the end, the scoring, the goal scoring, and. With Kolomwani and Turam, uh, I think the Champs had punchier options there, so it just kind of made sense. Also, precisely because what we mentioned about Giroud struggling in these transition situations, to me, kind of the change of like leaving Mbappé as the center forward uh, and then putting Turam to the left actually made sense, and I think it was a good and I think it was a good change for France. I think the intention was kind of that to like enhance what France could do. Uh, in transition by instead of having Mbappé and Giroud, uh, having uh, Turam and Mbappé. And I think it worked out. And I think that was a pretty good change and it worked and it, and the, and it worked out pretty well in the context that France were in. So I did like 
I, I did like the substitutions there. I agree. It worked. Um, and that's the ultimate gauge because Thuram was, it worked. And I, th- I agree that more than anything, Mbappe wasn't defending that much on the wing. So putting him up front, letting him occupy the defenders was really useful, I thought. Um, and I think as far as the next, you know, I agree on the substitutions as well. I think Camavinga needs to play more. I think the problem and the reason he doesn't play is because he doesn't have his role. He doesn't understand, like, I mean, we've known this a lot, but he doesn't have his archetype of player down. So maybe when he picks up the ball in Rabio's position, he doesn't have clarity on what to do with it. And maybe Deschamps sees that in training when they practice. I, I'm, i like, really confident that's the case. Fofana, he's not better, but he'll make the simple decisions and he won't make too many. Whereas Camavinga is so good, he will be in positions where he can dribble or pass. He can do 50 things to get out of a situation. He's still learning which one decision he should make. And that's where, you know, I understand. Like, this is Deschamps' style. Um, um, Camavinga's young. But someone like Jules Kunde, on the other hand, he's had a lot more experience at the top. He knows what to do at right back. Um, yeah. I guess Kunde's way more experienced. Yeah, that's the thing. Camavinga yeah. is just caught in a tricky spot. And I don't question, this is the area where Deschamps, I think, just like, he knows to keep things simple um, in this tournament, is what I feel. He... um. Yeah, like what you said about they know that they can always hit Mbappe on the counter. They know that it takes more effort for the opposition forwards to get a mistake out of Varane than it does for Mbappe to run in behind. And that's where I think the French rear guard is why I'm confident in this last game for them. I really like the way Varane has defended the whole tournament. You know, so many times between the last two World Cup, between the last World Cup and this, where we heard about Varane being some legacy player who was only good because he won titles. Well, now he's back and he's cooking. He's really good. And Konate was phenomenal. I actually think Konate is a better defender than Upamecano, interestingly enough. And um, I love I love their center backs. I think in the final, it's going to be gritty. Um, it's hard to predict. I think Argentina are at a level where you can't say France win for sure. I think that's a big compliment for me. Like I, It's not like the 2018 final where it would be a big shock if Argentina won. I think Argentina are better than Croatia 2018. They might be one of the stronger teams France has faced throughout the run when you consider the tactical clarity they play with. So, but um, I think Mbappe will win the tournament. I think France will win the tournament. It's a tough one. On Kamavinga, um, I think it's interesting that, you know, as we break down these last two France games together, that we noted problems in, in midfield in both the England game and the Morocco game, and there were no subs in midfield. And I think, like, when we talk about Kamavinga's inexperience and stuff, you know, when I look at it, at least, I see a player who played on the highest level in the Champions League knockout games with really high stakes and performed incredibly well under pressure off the bench. And I I thought that that was a huge green flag for his mentality and his ability to cope under pressure even if there are kinks to his game that he needs to work on. The other thing is that I think, especially in this game, when you look at the importance of ball carrying for France in transition, he would have been perfect in that scenario too. To bring the ball up the field when the legs are tired, when you just need someone to drive forward between the lines. You know, we, I know Jose, you noted that Chiumeni was so important that and is so good at that and and obviously had a couple noteworthy moments in this game. Also, his, his interception that starts France's second goal Um, so, so I just wanted to note that on Kamavinga that for sure, like I thought he would have been useful in this game again at this point, it's, it's, it's just, 
it's just us talking on a podcast and it means nothing. I, I think if he hasn't played at this point, he's not going to play in the final either. I'll add some one thing there. Other things, um, some disasters. They are high pressure situations. Sorry, to cut. I, I just really point. Um, it's a high pressure situation, but they're actually completely different high pressure situations. In one, you're throwing the like you're throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. So you want an all action player. I can see the fear in a player not knowing how to play with the lead as well within the identity as opposed to hey, your season's over, Cruz and Modric are tired and we have to beat PSG. Let's just throw on our young guy and see what happens. Um, so that, But I do think I would, if I were Deschamps, I would look for a way to incorporate him. But, um, you know, I just think the game state does play a big role there. Camavinga, when you're chasing a game, you kind of want him to go and try everything he can. But, you know, that that's just my only thought. I mean, I, like I, I, I will say, like, I don't, it's, I don't really, I mean, I can kind of, I can kind of explain it, I guess, in some way, but there's a pressure of representing your national team with the whole country watching you that is seems like a different beast. Like, you know, we saw it in Rodrigo's eyes stepping up to that penalty and the difference between him and his clutch clutch play in the Champions League at the end when the team needed him. And I don't hold anything against Rodrigo, obviously. You know, that, that as I said many times, I don't hold it against those players to miss in those situations. It's just, it does, I do think there is probably some argument there that the World Cup is more pressure-inducing than, than the Champions League, depending on, you know, what stage you're in and what the game state is. What about, I mean, we haven't, we've barely talked about too many. What notes did you guys have on him in this game? It's probably my favorite. This might be my favorite from any game on ball, uh, because it's just, like it's just one of those games. So the way France was set up was kind of interesting because when they defended, it was kind of a four-one-four-one, and you could see Tramani doing like the typical, like the typical role, screening midfield, being the deepest midfielder, and everything. But when France had the ball, what was interesting is that many times Fofana stayed back and it was Tramani, the one who had more freedom to go forward, carry the ball, uh, etc. So it was kind of fun because we did get to see... Uh, so in this case, without Rabiot, we actually get, get, got to see Tramani being kind of the a more aggressive midfielder than he's been throughout the tournament. So... We got to see the more offensive version of him with the ball. And that was pretty fun. You even look at him at his passing percentage, because I think like previous ones, it was always like a 97% thing, only misplaced one or two passes. This time around, he misplaced more. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It was just, this was a version of Tramini that was taking more risks with the ball and getting more stuff done in the attack because of it. So I had a lot of fun with it. It just reminds me that, what we see of Tramani in this kind of more composed, static six role in Real Madrid and and France—that's just one version of him. If you want him to, if you wanted him to be like a more attacking eight, you could get that out of him. It's just just their current national team and club that don't need that version of him, but he could do it if needed. Yeah, I agree. Um, he can do it if needed. I believe he played with Fofana at club level before, um, so you could kind of yeah. see. Yeah, Both you can Monaco. see. Yeah, so he, he played the Monaco role is what I saw it as today. A little more of a, like, maybe he didn't play that game way every game for Monaco, but when he's paired with Fofana, my understanding is that he tends to be a little more progressive. And um, especially this game, we saw it. Chouameni is someone, like, I, I think Jose said it best when he called him and um, 
a, like a player who tells you how the team is doing. So I actually like, I like, I do pay attention to him, but if he makes a mistake, I just assume there wasn't like stuff going right around the area tactically, as opposed to him being a problem guy. I find it interesting how he has some of the Kamavinga problem, but not to the same degree in that he's good at so many things that he maybe he needs to try more things, maybe play a little higher up and he doesn't always get the chance. There are a few times when he's given the ball away in this tournament once against England where I was just like, hey, like just play your simple six role. So to see him be able to progress today was fun. However, Chuameni is just like, I don't know how to describe it, but this guy's going to start and win titles for teams for a decade. Like, I'm not worried about him. And, you know, um, I'm more, I actually found the performances of guys like Varane, Theo more interesting because I think they have more to fight for. Like, Chuameni is starting for us for a decade. Um, I love the guy. Like, you know, that's why. So, yeah, I, didn't, I don't even pay too much attention to him unless something's going wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, and it's good that you mentioned the, like, also the risk taking and the ball losses when he plays like a bit more effect. Cause I think today there was one, like, at the 75th minute, something like that, like a turnover from Tramani that led to, like, a pretty dangerous Morocco attack. And of course, it's like, yeah, those are things where maybe he didn't play it as simple. But I, yeah, I kind of enjoy seeing this more offensive side of him. It's fun. And it just reminds you just how an insanely well rounded player he is. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things uh, here and there are pretty normal for every player. Not everyone's going to have a perfect game. Um, so that, I think that one that you're talking about was the one where it was, the I think, Hamdallah takes it off him. And Hamdala, that's the one where Hamdallah has like eight opportunities to shoot in the box and he doesn't pull the trigger. And he, so he kind of dodged a bullet there. And, and um, But, you know, those, those little kinks to his game sometimes, it's overwhelmingly positive. If you do the cost benefit analysis, he's press resistant. He carries the ball well. His ability to read the game, really impressive. Four inter- four interceptions tonight. Also, um, it's interesting going back, the Fofana partnership. I'm going back to my notes way back because I, I I had a vague memory of something. And uh he and Fofana played in a double pivot way back in the yeah. UEFA Nations League also uh, for France in the game where both of them played really well together too. So I, and I'm in sure Monaco, they, and they were in, a double in, pivot in, in Monaco. Back, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, in that sense, it, you can totally see to, uh, to our day shops thinking about that, probably their past partnership too, when, when deploying them together. Yeah. There are some very nice sequences. I didn't see them that much this time, but I think what I think it was versus Tunisia that Fofana played like, Like there are certain situations that I really like when Fofana like stays ahead of Tramani because he knows exactly what kind of progressive pass Tramani is going to play. So he's like right at the spot where he knows, okay, he can play that pass. I'm going to be here. And then he gets it. And And like, I remember that against Tunisia, like he was struggling because like his, like Fofana's ball control wasn't particularly great that game. So he was letting go of some of those passes, but you can see some of the chemistry there. Like Fofana positions himself like in the spots where he knows that Tramini can make those progressive passes. And it's, and those are the moments where you know it is that there is like, there was some club chemistry uh, going on. Of course, in this game, Fofana was significantly more conservative than Rabiot would normally be, which is probably one, just a function of the player habits and confidence, but also he had, they had, let's just say that France's left side was pretty busy today trying to defend everything that Morocco was trying to do on the right. So I think it's also natural that he was playing deeper. 
So for the final, if I, I I'm not sure which area for France could be more of a problem. Maybe it's um, Alvarez steamling through the left side of Fran or France's right side, or maybe it's um, Messi again. However, in the final, I expect it to be a defensive game for sure. However, um, I expect it to go a lot like French games have gone the last two World Cups. So essentially, if you go up on them, they will find a way to go equalize or go back up on you. And if they're up on you, good luck winning the game. <laughs> um, and I just think nil-nil game state is what I'm paying attention to the whole time in the final. If Argentina win, it might have to be like, you know, it's just maybe maybe France play better when they're maybe they play worse when they're up and the ideal way to beat them is going down early and then like having most of the game to equalize um a bit like um real madrid atleti in the 2016 final if you guys remember um like real scored early and then atleti had to play possession and juan fran and luis came up um maybe it's a game like that where argentina are forced to expand their game a little i i would say i, I would go with that just because um as great as the de defenders on both teams are i think when it comes to who's the best space creator on both teams, I think Mbappe has just edged out Messi now. Just physically speaking in a defensive game, you can afford more of a, like you cannot afford to be at the same numerical disadvantage you are when you're defending Mbappe in transition as Messi. I think Messi's easier to defend in transition. And that's where it allows France to play deeper. And so that's where I'm, that's what I'm looking at in the final. Essentially, can Mbappe, um, create more space and transition. That's what I think he will. Jose, any, uh, any further France-Argentina final thoughts? And then yes. we can jump on to a couple of other topics and then wrap it up. Yeah, I, I think that one is going to be fun because this is almost the final where I almost feel that the team that sits back harder is the one that has the advantage in a way. Uh, so uh, from... Because I think that the most comfortable game state for Argentina, like the one thing Argentina doesn't want, them be the them being the ones having the ball, having the initiative going forward, because then in that situation, they lose the ball. They're a good counter-pressing team, but you know what happens when you have Mbappé running down. And this time again against Nahuel Molina, who is not exactly the most talented, the the most talented defender. Uh yeah, that's a that's a complicated that's a complicated one for Argentina. So they actually don't want to be the proactive side in this one. The most favorable game context for Argentina is to sit back, to soak up the pressure, to let France come to them, and then try to see something not too different from what they were doing against Croatia. Just the big difference being that France has a lot more punch than Croatia. So they're going to test that defensive line a lot more than Croatia did, but I still think the game plan should be kind of similar. Soak up the pressure and then just try to find like those little opportunities with like Juliana, with Julian Alvarez and Messi up front and see what they, what they can get it. I think a very minimalist uh, defensive game plan is what works best for Argentina. And on the same side, like on the same time for France, France has more talent and just, let's just say that, they look better. They are looking better, punchier in possession than Argentina. So if they have to take the initiative, they will be a lot more comfortable than Argentina is. And they also have more speed in that back line to defend again. Like they also, on the counter, it's still kind of a more favorable situation for them because they have a bunch of monsters who can run in transition against Messi uh, and Julian. So it's not the same. So they... 
Argentina's threat going into space is not that big. So I do think France is more comfortable taking the initiative, but I still think that if France concedes, it's going to be more like that. It's more, it's going to be taking the initiative, trying to do something and then some counter opportunity happen and Julian finds a way or, well, you just saw Messi, like he didn't need pace to, to, to burn the bet, like, possibly the best center back in the tournament with Guardiola. So he doesn't need pace to burn you anyways. So, that's what I will say. That's why I think no, no is important because Guardiola did that when they were down already. So he was trying to win the ball back. So that's where yeah. if Argentina go up, I could see Messi cooking Varane, any of the defenders. I could see Messi cooking any one of them. But I can't see Argentina going up unless Alvarez does something like he did against Croatia. And that's where I yes. feel... I feel the French defenders are just so good. Like Varane, you can't just bully this guy. He's a tall guy. He's fast. Like you can't just shove him out of the way. Um, Konate is yeah. that. He's incredible physically. So yeah. My I- feeling is that, yeah, that it's easier. It's easier for France to go up 1-0 than it is for Argentina to go up 1-0. And also that would be much better for everyone watching too. Because like Argentina are so good defense. It's a, it's, it's a, yeah. That's I say that as a compliment to Argentina because they're so good defensively, and they've been one of the best defenses in the tournament, if not the best statistically speaking. I think it was Morocco up until today, but I but they they've been so good defensively in this tournament, and they have this ability to just slow the game down and grind and grind and turn the match really cagey and disrupt flow. And so for them to go ahead early, and this is where I think France had to be really careful not to make a mistake at the back or yeah. or, or slip or or succumb to like a counter-pressing effort where Argentina pounced on a loose ball in the box or, or just outside of it. If France go ahead, it's a different ball game. Now all of a sudden we get Argentina yeah. and getting trying to get Messi in the ball and Alvarez in the ball in the final third plus France's transition attacks. And that 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 becomes all of a sudden really fun. So against a slower against a slower back line and that's right. part of the issue. And then our then from Argentina's side, like I think there's going to be a very interesting game for France playing out the back like Upamecano, Tramini are going to have to be on their game with the ball because uh, Argentina has this so the main thing that Argentina has defensively above France is the amount of defensive work that their midfield line puts, because everyone there, like Enzo Fernandez, McAllister, uh, the ball, they all put on a massive defensive shift, and they are a really good, like they they actually have like this almost like club level like mid block and pressing trap approach where they try to like they try they try to bait you into making certain passes down the middle, and then. The midfielders know how to jump at the right moment, intercept the pass around the halfway line, and then try to get a counterattack from that situation. And if France wants to prevent those kinds of situations, then, yeah, it's going to be a very important... Like, then Tramene and Upamecano are going to have to be very sharp with their passives and have the ability to find, say, Griezmann uh, and Mbappé up front. And if, and of course, if France can overcome that line of pressure from Argentina, things get a lot easier from, the, from them. So it'll be interesting to see if Argentina can find a way to like cut, to intercept those passes, similar to how they did against Croatia through several phases, uh, and or if France finds a way to overcome that. Because, yeah, that's going to be quite an, inter- an interesting battle. 
I was a bit disappointed by Dembele today. I expected him to um do a little better. Um and yeah, you know, in the final, if they, you know, if he's that quiet, it could cause problems. But if Dembele goes lively, it's really hard to deny France everything they want to do. Yes, and I I was thinking that while what like. And, and that's the thing with Dembélé. Like, I love the guy. Of course, he's a super unpredictable threat, but it's also like a coin toss, whether he's going to have a good game. Like, that's the that's the thing that Dembélé is still kind of missing. Like, that that reliability that, you know, like, on this day, he's going to show up and he's going to break and he's going to break the, 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 the opposition. You don't know if it's going to happen. And to be honest, sometimes in the big games is when it's missing the most so he, he like stays on the wing instead of acting as an outlet or receiving why like mbappe why is mbappe the only outlet this game i don't understand that dembele has the speed better dribbler like why is why are you not attracting the defenders and just trying to run him in behind i was confused i feel like it's also like well first of all like the big deficit for dembele in general as a player is that he doesn't have that off ball game or no nor understanding of like i have to make the run here I also think that almost uh, so he he always does that thing where he mostly stays on the wing waiting to receive ball to feed and then he goes take on the defender. So that does li- having not having that off ball game limits his possibilities. I also think that there's also part like coaching instructions where I think co- coaches both in Barcelona and in, and the Champs like they're kind of afraid in a way of like don't go inside because you're going to lose the ball and then it's going to become a dangerous turnover. So just stay on the wing, wait to receive the ball. And, and, and that way coaches don't have to worry about like a potential turnover uh, in central areas. I think like uh, there's a lot of coaching instructor that, that just tells them, stay on the other wing and just, uh, but it's not, yeah, it's maybe not the best way. Uh, it, it just leaves Dembele super, super isolated. And yeah, I think it would be, in that isolated role, he would have more impact if he had a good off-ball game, but mm, not there. I did want to cycle through a couple of non-World Cup talking points with you guys really quick. One is that, like, just as a five-second, ten-second out of the way that a lot of people were thinking that Cristiano Ronaldo training at Valdebebas today was uh, some kind of sign. And just going to throw it out there, as, as far as I know, according to my sources, is that he was just in town. He has a house in Madrid and he wanted to stay in shape. So that's out of the way. The other thing is, I don't know if you guys noticed this or saw this. Maybe it came across your timeline. I think it must have some at some point last night. But uh, I can make a brief point about Ronaldo before go we for it. Um, basically, <laughs> I think it's hilarious that the day after Messi reached the World Cup final, Ronaldo had to find a way to get reports come out about him. I just died. I was so I was laughing. Like, of course. You go and train at Valdebebas, the one brand that's still top in the world that you can affiliate yourself with after whatever you did at United. I just thought that was so funny. Ronaldo's marketing is a whole other conversation, but um, it's really funny. He strikes me as someone who like, got really good and stayed authentic to get big. And then people around him stopped telling him that his brands, like they stopped evolving his brand. And this is an example of that. Like, you know, just the stuff his sister posted after they went out. Like, chill, man. Like, chill. <laughs> I didn't see that part, but it is related to what you basically are talking about. But just the behavior of so many people. And I don't, I'm not going to say they're Maridistas or not. But so many people just couldn't stand that a player that is an arch rival of their club or favorite player had a good game that added to his legacy last night. So people just couldn't stand it. 
And it just it just goes to show you that like how many people actually rely on someone else's failure for their own happiness. That's one thing that was like, you guys just, you guys got to learn how to find internal sources of happiness. That's one. The second thing is that, and I don't know if you guys caught this, but Endrick put out a tweet about Messi yesterday, praising Messi. I don't remember what the tweet was. It was pretty short. It was basically just an emoji and just in Messi's doing amazing things. And he had to delete it because he was met with an army of Maridistas ripping him to shreds. The guy is 16, has had said multiple times in interviews that he loves Ronaldo. Ronaldo is a huge figure as an idol in his life. And he puts out a tweet praising Messi in a World Cup semifinal game. And he has to delete it because people are losing their shit that he complimented somebody that what that they don't like. Number two is Modric got a lot of slander yesterday because Modric had messy praise as well. And I'm just like, this is why we can't have nice things. You guys, everyone just needs to get over themselves. Enjoy art. Enjoy football. My God, I just needed to get that off my chest. That's it. There's there's a healthy level. I think there's a healthy level of banter and rivalry. And there's a lot of fans who definitely exceed that. Now I'm thinking about it like for Endrick because he's going to get like a double pylon because you get the pylon from Real Madrid fans. Then you get the pile the pylon from Brazilians who probably don't want don't want to praise an Argentinian. So that's uh, uh but yeah. Uh, so one, it, it, like it's the difference between like supporting your team and hating the opposition. I yeah, I can support my team, but I I can't. Uh, but but that level of hate is just I I agree. Just kind of find other sources of happiness, other sources of happiness in your life. That uh, that I definitely agree on. I didn't know. So I've I've seen the 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 Modric thing. So. That being said, I, I hadn't looked at replies or comments. I didn't know that people actually got upset at what's very clearly a generational player praise, praising another generational player. Uh, the Endrick one, I the Endrick one, I hadn't seen, but it's like, oh, poor guy. That's a double pylon from Brazil and Real Madrid fans. For what it's worth, we saw the exact same thing when Ronaldo was scoring hat tricks to win us Champions League after Champions League, and it's like. All of a sudden, you saw lots of tweets about how you can't be good if you don't touch the ball outside the box or something. I'm like, chill, man. He decided these games. Like, he's it's good. a seesaw. It goes back and forth, and it goes both ways for sure. Yeah, and it's this is it. Uh, like Ronaldo's yeah. a little bit older in his career right now. He's not nearly. He's not. He's just not doing what Messi's doing, obviously. So there's there's that aspect of it too. And I just wait. If after all of this, if Messi score, if Messi like misses a penalty in the final, it's gonna come yeah. back the other way like a tsunami. Um, yeah. Ronaldo that being said, crazy. by the way, got, talking about that. Uh, so talking about Endrick again. So if, if there's one thing when you see Endrick played is that he's clearly more Ronaldo inspired than Messi inspired. You can see that in the way he plays. You can see right. you can see he's watched more Messi than the, the more Ronaldo than Messi through. Yeah. Like he's learned more from that. Yeah. I feel like he's learned more from Ronaldo, but his technique is like Messi's. <laughs> That's what makes it like some of his finishes are very messy in my opinion and the way he gains a little touch and um all things considered what i find interesting is that ronaldo has fueled this with the way he brands himself like more than messy ronaldo has fueled this it's like there's an article that jonathan leo wrote on the guardian and i reference this every time i talk about his marketing but 
Ronaldo's brand is being the man who makes the world like bend your will. And it's just really funny how much he's marketed goals. Like at worst, he's one of the top five players in the history of football, in my opinion. It's unlikely that you can place him far below four or five. Even if you don't value his off-ball game as much as me, you can't like bump him down too low. But um, I think he's contributed to it by essentially using numbers as marketing. Like he started, I feel he really pushed the goals, the goals, the goals. And I will admit there were times when he, when I was younger, when Ronaldo won the Ballon d'Or, when maybe Messi was just better than you. It's quite possible. Um, it's quite possible. Like there were only a couple of those years, even when he won the Ballon d'Or, that I think he was better. But um, that's what I find interesting. It, I feel like it just became this marketing thing that they made the sport more popular as a result of what they did. And now we have this sport full of stands that just are waiting. And I feel like this is going to continue if players market themselves like this. They like you create the sort of discourse you want to see. Now, maybe it's partially more interesting because when you see other people lose their minds over another human being, you wonder what's going on here. But I don't think it's that great long-term. I agree. It creates a lot of shad and fraud where people experience emotions that starts to push them away from the sport. Eventually I would assume. Yeah, um, there's no question. There's no question. Um, e- either way, um, it's just, I, I guess part of the part of the frustration is that, um, and this happens in basketball too. It happens in any sport, probably. The, I only follow football and basketball, but it's just sometimes it's just annoying that the dialogue is not about the greatness of all these players and the treat that we get mm-hmm. watching these guys play. It's like, if one of these players is something, well, instead of focusing on that, we just have to focus on being caught in this just childish feud, <laughs> which, yeah, it's just, you know, that anyways, it's just a frustration. Anyways, uh, it's, it's neither here nor there. Really. We should, we should just be talking about other things, but yeah. Well, I just and instead of, and instead of hating that, like hating when the opponent does good things, I mean, this is why these two ascended to the heights they did because they pushed each other with what they did. So, like, it's not like like Ronaldo goes and hates what Messi does. He takes that and uses that to try to be better, and vice versa. And that's kind yeah. of the like. And if you're gonna have a like, if you're gonna have an opponent and a rivalry, that's how you should take it. Use it not as an as an opportunity to like. Uh, hate or demean others, but use it as an opportunity to improve yourself. Yeah, that's where I think Messi himself would be the first to credit Ronaldo in these conversations. But um, yeah, I agree. I, I completely agree. I don't think Messi would be as good as he's become without someone like Ronaldo to push him. I completely agree. Now, I guess one talking point I want to bring up. Um, did Florentino place the call to Nasser Al-Khalifi already? Um, when, when is Mbappe? So I just want to bring up this one point. Mbappe for France plays where he wants to play. For PSG, he posts Instagram stories criticizing his coach for playing him as the pivot. I feel like this is going one way. How do you guys feel? I mean, with that particular thing, he's he has Vinicius here, so I don't know if he's going to... Uh, I suppose in two years, Benzema will... I don't even know if Benzema will be gone. It's possible that he just stays in a diminished role and then Endrick's going to be here. In the end, he's going to... like. He's the type of person I think who is going to be like, well, I get what I want if I'm coming there, but I don't know how to answer that. Sid, has he made a call this World Cup? No, I'm 100% sure that he wouldn't have done that. But will the call be made eventually? I think it's on the table in two years. 
eventually. Yeah. Right now, I think I think right now Al Khalifi is is not even receiving calls. He's just parting around because he had he has Messi and Mbappe in a World Cup final. So that like this is kind of a dream final for Qatar because it's like the PS because it's like the PSG stars like both of them facing off facing off each other in the World Cup final. But I kind of agree also with with Kian that it's right now finding. A fit for Mbappé can be tricky in Real Madrid because with Vinicius' current situation, I would also kind of make sense for Mbappé to play a bit more of a pivot center forward role similar to what he's playing in in PSG. So I want, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if he can get what he wants there. Right now, like with Vinicius' explosion, like, it kind of makes more sense right now. Like right now, for example, uh, looking at the future and looking at like uh, and looking at like the current generational monsters, Holland makes more sense in this team right now than Mbappe in terms of fit. Like I can see the fit more easily right now. Now I'm gonna disagree, but only in a way that's interesting. Firstly, um, the reason I think um, essentially that it would work here is yes, he plays pivot for PSG. But the guys he plays with are Neymar and Messi. They cannot hold the width. They cannot run in behind the way Vinicius can. So immediately, That's I think true. there's more interchangeability to the Mbappe-Vinicius dynamic that you just don't see in PSG. I actually can totally see that working fine. I'm not even worried because um, I believe we are like, when the way we sign players is we just want the best. And Holland, he's going to bang in goals for City. I don't think he's going to put the transfer request in soon. But, you know, Mbappe wins the World Cup. He goes back and plays pivot, maybe goes out to Bayern in the round of 16, and everyone's talking about Haaland again. In that scenario, I think Mbappe makes himself come here because, you know, his, his mom put out to pretty much all the major media companies that the relationship broke a couple months ago because they went back on promises. They told him they'll sign Chuameni and Lewandowski, and they never followed through. Um, so yeah, he was promised a role, is my understanding. So I... That's where I'm not as sure. The con- And Kian and I talked about how the contract is shorter um, than we thought initially. And essentially, af- um, with Messi, like pretty old and possibly going to Barcelona or MLS, Neymar just lost his World Cup dream that he kind of got motivated for. I don't know what else he has in mind for the rest of his career. And Mbappe now about to go back to a club situation where Haaland is going to probably outscore him in the next six months. I think this is not nearly as cool a situation for Qatar as you guys think. I think my understanding is actually PSG fans, people in France, they know PSG are a mess. It's not like they have a big brand presence, but they don't like, I don't know. You kind of read about it. Or you're like, wow, Messi and Mbappe in the final. How are their club doing? Oh, they're trash. Like, it's kind of weird, um, even though they're doing better this year. And that's where I think this might be more of the end of a temporary peak for the Qatar project than actually a celebration. I don't doubt the most of what you said, I think is true. I think, but it's not like, I don't doubt the tactical fit. Yeah. With Vinicius and Mbappe and the interchangeability and that link up play on the left that runs in behind, it would be devastating. That's I'm not going to say that's not going to work. That, it, that will work. If it doesn't work, then it would have to be like a brain dead coach who was like coaching us <laughs> two years from now, doing something weird, like asking them to play in, the, in uh, as like, you know, in our box or something that would work. Then, then there's the Endrick piece, but then you, you then just ease Endrick in whenever. And I, I don't doubt that aspect of it. And even this 
this summer, I didn't doubt the tactical aspect because it was like, oh, questions like, how is this going to work tactically? All these players here. In two years from now, it'll be probably even less cluttered. I don't doubt, I don't doubt that. I also don't doubt the fact that Real Madrid is just a cooler place to play. And it's not mess. It's not, you're not, you're not breaking all these promises. You're not, the relationship is probably better with the club, between the club and the player. What I doubt is how much will it matter when, uh, the Sheikh shows up with another briefcase in two years. And that, and in that case, there's that. But you got, I got to say, like, he got he got his briefcase already. From a prison How perspective. How much money can add. you spend in a lifetime before you die? I was just going to add, a briefcase once is valuable, but the second briefcase might not be as valuable as the marketing presence Madrid gives you. And I'm honestly pretty convinced it's way less valuable from a business standpoint. Now, I'm not 100% sure. From a, from, a, from a branding standpoint, maybe more than a business standpoint. Well, cause... that's the thing. Branding means digital real estate, which means more people just naturally come to expand your empire for you. And that's where it doesn't, I think he initiates so much more of it at PSG. It's just not, Madrid and Barca are backed, like like just the algorithms, they really dominate the algos online, is my opinion. Um, it, at least in my experience living in the world, you're just not. And what I mean to say is the first briefcase is worth a lot. But what you can do with that briefcase and the Madrid brand presence, in my opinion, is far superior to what you can do with two briefcases. Also, like, it's always funny to me because sometimes I, it's almost like we pretend Mbappe would come to Madrid to be homeless in that, like, he's going to get paid handsomely at Real Madrid as well. It's not like he's they're, they're going to throw him, like, you know, just a few bucks here and there, uh, like a stipend. He's going to get paid handsomely. It's just that he's not going to be paid maybe on like, you know, Sheikh level. That's it. But yeah, I mean, I just don't, I just don't know in two years. Logically speaking, everything you're saying makes sense. Tactical fit, branding, legacy. Six months, six months would be, if it's, if it's something like that, Sid, a six month timeline, it would mean Mbappe himself would have to breach the contract and pay himself out. No, for sure. I just mean, you're PSG. You broke a promise to this guy and you won the World Cup. This is a guy who models himself after LeBron James and loves flexing player power. Um, I just could see him after this tournament being like, yo, I'm the best in the world. Change your system or I'm getting out of here this summer. Like, And I could see him being more serious. That's all. More than anything, it's I could see him being much more serious about wanting to leave than before. And in that case, my, my thing is like, even the contract he signed was designed in a way where he still comes to us in his prime and they're just expediting it by screwing it up every time they get him to stay. Um, and yeah, it'll be interesting. I just think, um, you know, if he wins the world cup, I don't think Perez is not getting him at some point. Like this is a match made in heaven. Like it just makes too much sense. We'll see. We'll see, well, we'll see what the post world cup period looks like for PSG. Like, I think it's interesting because I've also been wondering, like, both, ne- both Messi and Neymar were playing at a really high level because they were super motivated going ahead of the World Cup. We'll see what happens post-World Cup, how Messi will be in terms of mental and physical exhaustion post-World Cup. We'll see how Neymar is doing in terms of motivation post-World Cup because I think it was a bit of a frustrating period for Mbappé because both, uh, like, both Neymar and Messi were playing at their level, like at the highest possible level. And that took a bit off the shine from Mbappé, but we'll see how it looks like post-World Cup because I think seeing a decline in the performances of Messi and Neymar would be 
or would it's something that I'm almost expecting. So that would be a period where like the this second half of the season could be a, a period where Mbappé looks once again on top uh in that in that PSG hierarchy. But we will but we will see what happens. And that's the main reason I'm excited because no matter even the best case scenario, I think Haaland scores at least as many goals as him and I think that pisses him off and I'm betting on that. <laughs> Guys, I can't do this again. We literally had a massive podcast this summer. And it was like, thank God we don't have to talk about this for three more years. And it's now this is what it's we're like, what, three months after we're talking about this? Can't do that. I'm just can't do it. The main thing I've learned since that summer really is that Real Madrid and Barcelona, I feel, are much more powerful brand entities. I just don't think they're going anywhere. I think these conversations are inevitable. I think. That's how the sport is designed right now. <laughs> I gotta love Sid coming on this podcast. He just brings a different, different energy to like, uh, you know, in that Jose, you weren't on yesterday's podcast for patrons, but we talked about Mbappe and Messi more than we talked about anything else. Uh, so it's just this is the Sid perspective that he brings on. He gets us talking about all these things. I gotta run. My kid wants my attention, and he deserves it. Um, so we're gonna go. We're going to wrap it up here. And I think Lucas and I are moving the mailbag to Friday this week. So stay tuned for that. Jose, thank you. Sid, thank you. Appreciate your time. Talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening, guys. And before we let you go, we wanted to give a quick shout out to our patrons over on patreon.com slash managing Madrid and specifically to our $10 plus patrons who do so much to support the show. And if you pledge $10 or more, not only do you get access to every single bonus episode we do, and get guaranteed responses to your questions, you also get a specific shout out on the podcast. So shout out to these $10 plus patrons as follows. Brandon Alvarez, Willie Reed, Will Sousa, Way Pairing, Tobias Arroyo Bacher, Talib Salhab, Tahmid Kalam, Sujaiwani, Sumanchu Singh, Sheikh Atiri, Shamil, Shabazz Sharapov, Sergio Arispe, Santos Solorsano, Samuli Justin, Samar Z, Said Mahad, Sai Mohan Sasi Kumar, Rodrigo Balmaceda, Rishi D, Phoenix, Peter Powell, Paulo Fierro, uh, Oscar Barrera, Martin Ridman, Magnus Lext, Patrick Odaifati, Nico Laxo, Nicholas Moller, Nick Ribeiro, Mowgli, MJ Diego, Michael Zinberg, Marin Myrtle, Magnus Lex, Logan Stahl, Leon Stavronakis, Kunal Tilakar, Crystal Glass, Kevin Rivera, Jose Cruz, John Fernandez, Jason Fitz, Ian Marley, Graham Gerard, Gary Kohut, Frederick Rantakiro, Frederick Sundros, Faisal Hamdan, S.A. Davisito, Eloy Enriquez, Edward Sossman, Daniel Williams, Khan P., Christian Toff, Christian Acosta, Charles Williams, Brendan Powers, Brandon Stevens, Ashik Bashar, Arnab Mukherjee, Armand Gashi, Armando L, Antons Rudenko, Anirud Singh, Ananya Kumar, Al, Azaz Hussein, Adrian Rios, Adar Zalukovic, Adam Dorsey, Varun, Fabian Moreno, and Daniel Smith. You guys are freaking incredible. Thank you so much for being part of this family. Thank you for the support. We love having you guys here and look forward to continually growing this podcast with you guys. Appreciate it. Take care and Hala Marit.